Having considered the first three quarters of the letter of Paul to the Corinthians, a few things I think should be clear to us at this point. The first is that the Corinthians had big problems. That's not a profound statement. Throughout the history of the church, the Corinthians are known as the carnal Corinthians. The church at Corinth has been synonymous with carnality and sin and disunity. Their reputation remains less than stellar. Almost 2,000 years after these folks moved their residency from southern Greece and into heaven. At its core, the Corinthian problem was selfishness and pride which had led to disunity in the church. There were specific manifestations of the selfishness and disunity, like filing lawsuits against one another, arguing over who baptized them, marriages that were in trouble, and abuses of both the Lord's table and spiritual gifts, the passage that we're in even as we speak today. But the root cause, and we should never miss, lose sight of this, the root cause was selfishness in this church. Over the course of the epistle, Paul has dealt with each of these, individu- each of these issues individually, and he's given specific instructions as to how each was to be handled. Don't follow the lawsuits. Find someone qualified in the church to act as a mediator. Christ died for you. Not the person that baptized you. Christ died for you, so quit arguing over who baptized you. Stop withholding yourself from your spouse, which is one of the problems in marriage that they had. Participate in the Lord's table in an orderly manner. Recognize that all of the parts of the body of Christ are important. And there should be no hierarchy when it comes to spiritual gifts. No pecking order when it comes to spiritual gifts. All these are specific. And they have come from the Holy Spirit. And they are important. But as the letter of 1 Corinthians is going to inch toward its conclusion, a broader application is introduced in chapter 13. If the root problem in Corinth is selfishness, then the basic solution must be the opposite of selfishness, which is love. Love is willing the highest and the best for someone else. And you can see how that's the the polar opposite of selfishness. Selfishness wills the highest and the best for myself, and I don't care what happens to you. That's selfishness. But love's the opposite. And Paul's going to introduce love as the ultimate answer to all of their problems. He gave them specifics to be sure. But at the end of the day, the ultimate answer to the problems in Corinth and the ultimate answer to the interpersonal problems that we face is going to be love. Love is an emotion, but it's not strictly an emotion. It's an act of the will as well as a feeling. In the beginning of chapter 13, actually at the end of chapter 12, but as chapter 13 began, Paul tells them that he's going to introduce them to a more excellent way or a better way than the way that they had been functioning in that church. Rather than selfishness and pride, which was leading to disunity and a rotten testimony, by the way, in the Corinthian community, Paul encourages them to try love which promotes unity and a wonderful testimony to the community for Jesus Christ. We ought not to forget him in all this. It's Christ, after all, who should be the center here. It's Jesus who should be promoted. Not me and not you, but Jesus is the one that should be promoted. If the Corinthians would set aside their own self-promotion for just a moment and love one another as they've been commanded to do by their Lord, Their testimony for the one who really matters would improve radically. 
Now, that's true in Corinth. It's true for us today. This is a timeless principle. It's a timeless application. We might not have the same specific problems that the church at Corinth did. Thank the Lord that we don't. But the solution to whatever problems we find ourselves having is not more selfishness. It's love. Love never fails. The Greek term used in verse 8 of chapter 13 is pipto, which means to fall down or to fall to the ground or collapse or to fall apart, to fail or come to an end. The contrast that Paul's bringing up in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is between something that's permanent, love, which by the way they're not practicing right now, and some things that, some things that are temporary, which are certain spiritual gifts in the church, that they've given a place of prominence in the spiritual life. And they've got it backwards because love is permanent, Paul argues. It will never fall apart. It will never collapse. It will never fade away. On the other hand, as we saw in our previous lesson, the gift of prophecy will be brought to an end. Tongues will cease. The gift of knowledge will be brought to an end. And these three gifts that Paul brings up in verse 8 are all under the category of revelatory gifts. That's what they share in common. These are temporary revelatory gifts. Prophecy involved more than just predicting the future. You know, like you see in the newsstands about the first of the year, somebody's always going to predict what's going to happen in the coming year. Sometimes they're pretty good predictions because they're wise people. They can read the trends of history and they have a decent idea of what's going to happen. Sometimes they're silly predictions. And, and oftentimes when we speak biblically of prophecy, people think of, say, a prophecy conference or pre, the pre-trib group or something like that where we go up and we learn about the rapture or the tribulation or the millennium or these kind of things. In other words, something that's been predicted for the future. That was only part of prophecy in the Old Testament and the New Testament gift of prophecy. Primarily the New Testament gift of prophecy, and certainly the Old Testament gift too, was speaking for the Lord, a biblical truth before it actually became biblical. That's the gift of prophecy. So it's more than simply predicting the future. It's a message from God given before the canon of Scripture was completed. After the canon was completed, there's no need for the prophecy anymore. After the scriptures are there, we don't need somebody to tell us prophetically or speaking for God something that's already in the scriptures. Tongues were, according to the Pentecostal writer, Meyer Perlman, the power of speaking supernaturally in a language never learned by the speaker. That language being made intelligible to the listeners by means of the equally supernatural gift of interpretation. Now that's a Pentecostal writer. I happen to agree with him. I think that's a wonderful definition of tongues. Now, that's not the common Pentecostal definition, but I think he had it right. I want to read it one more time. Tongues were, and he's right, the first century gift of tongues did look like this. The power of speaking supernaturally in a language never learned by the speaker, that language being made intelligible to the listeners by means of the equally supernatural gift of interpretation. Now, last time I argued that tongues as they were practiced in the first century key idea. Tongues, as they were practiced in the first century, had ceased. We gave some historical arguments for that. We gave a biblical argument for that. I'll review it again in just a moment. And sometimes people will say, well, listen, I know of a case. I have a friend. And that friend, I have a friend, in fact. I'm a very close friend that I trust completely, very involved in missionary work, who told me that he has some other friends that were down in South America, in a jungle in South America. 
where that group of missionaries did not speak the dialect of the tribe that they were ministering to. And supernaturally, one of the, minister, one of the missionaries ended up speaking in that particular dialect. Now, I've got to tell you, I have, no, I have no reason to doubt my friend. I have no reason to doubt his friends. I don't know why they would make something like that up. They're all people of integrity. But I don't think that's the first century gift of tongues. I have no doubt that that happened. I've always also heard of that happened in Haiti, with people speaking in French that didn't know French. I have no doubt that that happens occasionally. But that's not the first century gift of tongues. The first century gift of tongues was practiced in an entirely different manner in the church, Primarily to Jews in the church. We'll talk about that a little bit more in a moment. Primarily for unbelievers. And there was always somebody there to interpret. So do these things happen today? I have no doubt that they do at all. Like, like Charles Stanley said, I'm not going to put God in a box and tell him what he can do and what he can't do. But in the, the, the gift as it is commonly practiced today doesn't look anything like the gift in the first century. So in that sense, we argued last week, the tongues had ceased. In the first century, tongues were a spoken language that was a regular, real language. And it was interpreted by someone who had an equally supernatural gift of interpretation. Tongues were intended originally to be a sign for unbelieving Israel. We'll see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 21 and 22 when we get there. But it came first from the prophet Isaiah, all the way back in Isaiah 28. When Isaiah is warning the people about coming discipline... For the Jewish people. He speaks of a time in the future. And he says this. Indeed he God will speak to this people. Through stammering lips. And a foreign tongue. The languages of the surrounding people. Sounded very strange to the Jewish ears. That's why he said stammering lips. He who said to them. Here is rest. Give rest to the weary. And here is repose. But they would not listen. That's Isaiah chapter 28, the first time that this phenomenon of tongues is ever mentioned in the scriptures. That was about 700 years before it was fulfilled. But this is where it was mentioned first prophetically in Isaiah 28. And in the next chapter, in chapter 14, Paul's going to go back and he's going to quote Isaiah 28 as, the, as what's happening in the first century as a fulfillment of what happened in Isaiah 28. Speaking in tongues signified... That God had become a new work that included the Gentiles, not just the Jews. The Jews are God's people. They were God's people. They still are God's people. God's not finished with them. But speaking in tongues was primarily a gift that was directed toward Jewish people to signify that God had begun a new work that included the Gentiles. The Lord would now speak to all nations in all languages. The barriers were down. Major point in Paul's letter to the Ephesians also. And so the gift of tongues symbolized both God's discipline on the nation Israel and God's blessing on the rest of the world, on the whole of the world. So tongues signified in the first century that something is changing. And they were a revelatory gift, just like prophecy was. Knowledge is a little tougher to pin down, the gift of knowledge. It refers not just to ordinary knowledge, not about how to build a bridge or how to do an algebraic equation, anything like that, but specifically knowledge given by the Holy Spirit with respect to spiritual things. That was the gift of knowledge. It also was a revelatory gift intended to edify not just the person who had it. Because you'll recall 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, spiritual gifts were given for the common good. 
My gift was given for your benefit. Your gift is given for my benefit. That's why unity in a church is so important. And it's no accident that Paul brings up this idea of love and unity in the middle of a context about spiritual gifts. Because you can just blow off the idea of spiritual gifts altogether if there's no unity in a church, if there's no love in a church. But knowledge like tongues and prophecy was a revelatory gift intended to edify, not the person who had it, but others in the, in the entirety of the congregation. In verse 9, Paul says, For we know in part and we prophesy in part. He takes the first and the last, know, uh, the knowledge and prophecy, and forms an inclusio for all three of these gifts. We know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect or the completed comes, the partial will be done away. As Paul writes this in the mid-50s of the first century, there were three revelatory gifts which were all partial in their function. None of them was intended to impart completed revelation. In verse 10, though, we're introduced to something that is completed or perfect. It's the same word, totelion. It's a term that means perfect, finished, or completed. It's a cousin of the word that Jesus used on the cross, tetelestai, when he said it is finished or it is completed. Here, it's used as a comparison to another Greek term, meros, meros the partial. So that's why many New Testament scholars believe the word completed is probably a better understanding of how totelios is used here rather than maybe perfect because it's being compared to something that's partial. So if it's being compared to something that's partial, then some of your translations, I think, rightly say the completed, and that makes sense. I think that's the consensus view, too, in New Testament scholarship. So complete is probably the better translation. So again, when the completed comes, the partial would be done away. We're not told explicitly what the completed is, which is, as we discussed last week, it's given a, an opportunity for a lot of views to come up. And I discussed six of them with you last week. I won't go back over that again. But if we stick carefully with the context, I think we can narrow it down a bit as to what is being referred to here. Paul is comparing partial revelation with completed something. These partial revelatory gifts with completed something. Now, what could that completed something be? We, we talked about all the different options last week. But if we're to state in the context in a tight way, the most reasonable thing to think that it's being compared to is partial revelation, completed revelation. That's the most reasonable answer, staying within the context and the flow of the argument. Now, I've got to tell you, what some people do is they go backwards with this. And they start in verse 13 and work their way backwards through the passage. And sometimes when you do that, you make them come up with some more options. But that's not how we read something. You don't start at the end and you read backwards. You read at the beginning and go down. That's how Paul reasoned through this. So I believe the most reasonable understanding of what the completed is, is completed Revelation. When completed revelation comes, the partial revelatory gifts will no longer be necessary. So they will fade away or pass away. As God's completed revelation in the canon of Scripture was completed and circulated. I, can't, I think that's a key idea. And circulated. The partial revelatory gifts 
then became unnecessary. The canon was completed by around A.D. 96 when the Apostle John finished the book of Revelation. And by the mid-2nd century, within probably 50 years, the New Testament canon was well on its way to being compiled and recognized. This fits the historical data, too, because you remember we said in a previous lesson, Chrysostom and Augustine, the leading theologians of the Eastern Church and the Western Church, respectively, both wrote that by the mid-fourth century, this gift of tongues as it was practiced in the first century had long since passed away. Now, Augustine did allow for miracles to continue, but he didn't believe that tongues had continued. It had long since faded away by their time, which was mid to late fourth century. If we fast forward to one of the next great theologians of antiquity, Thomas Aquinas, in the mid 13th century, he too argued against the practice of speaking in tongues on the basis of the fact that in the first century, tongues represented known languages. But in the few isolated cases of which he was aware of people claiming to have spoken in tongues, not in his day so much, we don't have another historical record, the record comes through Aquinas, but the ones that he had heard about, the people were all speaking some sort of gibberish. And so Aquinas concluded that this may be something, but it's not the first century gift of speaking in tongues. So he rejected speaking in tongues for that reason. And most of you know that Thomas Aquinas had a profound impact on both Roman Catholic theology and later Protestant theology. In fact, he's got a profound impact on Rome even to this day. What is being practiced, whatever it is, is not the first century gift. In fact, the speaking in tongues was unknown, essentially unknown in Roman Catholic circles until about 1976. And the, Roman, the, the semi-official position, I don't think they have actually a, a position where they have put it in writing, but the semi-official position of the Roman Catholic Church, and it came all the way from Aquinas and then back to Augustine, they would trace it back that far, is that whatever's happening today is not the first century gift of tongues, so they reject it. Now there is, since 1967, there has been this movement in Roman Catholicism where the charismatics have come into Roman Catholicism. And, for example, south of downtown, we have a very large Catholic charismatic center. But that's not the official dogma of Rome. That's a splinter group. It's not mainstream Roman Catholicism. Now, today, we continue in verse 11. When I was a child, I used to speak as a child, think as a child, reason as a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then, face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall be fully known, just as I also have been fully known. But now abide faith, hope, and love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. In verse 11, speaking about childish things. I remember one of the camps that I went to up at Hermit Basin. We did that a couple times as a church. It's a great camp. I had the honor one time of, of having Dwight Pentecost, the Dallas Seminary professor, in the room next door to me. And one day, of course, Dr. P was mid-80s. By that time, he's mid-90s now, somewhere in that range. But I asked him if he wanted to go river rafting with us. And he looked at me right in the eye and says, No, Bruce, when I became a man, I did away with childish things. <laughs> Good job, Dr. P. Well, that's not what this passage really means. That's not what he's talking about here. 
The comparison is between immaturity and maturity. Paul's not putting down childhood here. We love children. We love childhood. We all, most of us, cherish our childhood. And the way he's using the term childish is not the same way that we might use that term. Today, if I was to tell an adult, you're acting in a very childish way, or the way that Dr. Pentecost used the term with me, that that would be a put-down. But Paul's not using the term as a put-down here. He's just making a comparison to the things that are normative for childhood versus the things that are normative for adulthood. And in Dr. P's case, since he was significantly senior to most of us there, in his eyes, relatively speaking, going river rafting when you didn't have to, was something of childhood. It wasn't something that a mature thinker would do, not if you didn't have to. It's like rock climbing or something. You do things like that on purpose. I don't understand that one either. But that's not the way Paul's using it. So I don't want you to misunderstand here. He's not using the term childish in a pejorative way. In other words, he's not saying that the gift of tongues as the Holy Spirit originated them is a childish thing in a pejorative way. He's just saying it's something for the the time of the church where the church had not yet matured. So don't think of it in as pejorative a way as we might uh, today. So he's not putting down childhood or the things of childhood, but his implication is when the church matured, the church would put away the things of childhood. You remember when your kids were little? If, you're, if they were like mine, they had whole boxes of toys and little rocking chairs and all the little tables and all the things that children use. And they're very functional at the time, aren't they? They're, they're well designed. I have a rocking chair that my grandson Brett is using right now that I used when I was a kid. You know, 30 years ago or something when I was a little child. <laughs> something like that. 35 maybe, something like that. I used it until I was in my 20s. That's what it was. But it's a real little rocking chair. It spent the entire wintertime in Casper, Wyoming, under the snow, and it survived. They really made things well. It's a well-made little rocking chair. But there's going to be a time pretty soon where he's too big for that rocking chair. So it's going to go back up in the attic. If there's another grandchild or somebody else, we'll we'll pass it along to him. And all the toys that we've got spread out all over, we'll put them in a box. There'll There'll come a time we'll put them all in a box, and we'll give them away to somebody else or... Or storm up in the attic for another grandchild, same way. Because once you get to a certain age in life, you don't sit in that rocking chair anymore. Not that little bitty one. You sit in a bigger one. Not the little bitty one, though. And while those blocks were really cool when we were little, now we've moved on to other toys like iPhones or iPads or you know something that's a lot more expensive. That's all Paul's saying is these things, and he's making the comparison here to prophecy, tongues, and knowledge, all perfectly legitimate, all perfectly reasonable, designed by the Holy Spirit, ordained by the Holy Spirit, all very useful in their proper context. But if you were to come over to my house this evening after the evening service, and my grandson had already gone to bed, and you found me in the living room playing with the box, the blocks and reading one of those little books about the, what color is an orange, you know, what color is the banana, then you might have think I'd lost it, wouldn't you? Because I was doing something as an adult, as a mature person, that while perfectly legitimate when I would have been one or two, is not perfectly legitimate anymore. And it's not putting down the little book. The little book was fine. Now, that's the mistake that a lot of us make, okay? Let's just get frank about it. 
A lot of us make a mistake and we throw the baby out with the bathwater. And we see things that are being practiced today that we, it's just that a gut instinct that we know aren't quite right. Then we look back at history and see the probabilities they passed away by the mid-fourth century. We look at the biblical argument and say the probabilities biblically that they passed away there too. And then we see they say, well, tongues must be evil. Not in the context in which it was practiced, it wasn't. It was a good thing. God invented it. God doesn't invent bad things. It's the same phony argument people use with the Mosaic Law sometimes. We're not under the law today. It's very clear in the New Testament. We're not under the Mosaic Law. But as Paul argues in Romans chapter 7, does that make the law bad? Heaven forbid it's not bad. But it was for another time. It's perfect. God wrote it. But it's not for today's dispensation. It was for a different time. In the same way, if you grasp that, and I think you do, if you grasp my silly little metaphor about the children's toys, and I think you got it, then you can grasp what Paul's saying here. It just flows right into it. When I was a child, I used to speak as a child, think as a child, reason as a child. But when I matured, if I could translate it that way, I did away with the things of immaturity. Not that, they, not that the things of immaturity were bad in and of themselves. They were not. God invented them. But they were for a specific time and place. And when the permanence of Scripture came into being, and when it was circulated, because it took some time for it to be circulated, but when all that happened, then you don't need the children's blocks or the children's toys anymore. You've got something that's better. You've got an iPad. You don't need the little book that says, What color is the banana? They were all perfectly legitimate. Prophecy, tongues, and knowledge were all perfectly legitimate in the context of the early church. But as the church matured and the New Testament canon was completed and circulated, the partial revelatory gifts were no longer necessary. That's all he's saying here. Then in verse 12, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part... But then I shall be fully known, just as I also have been, I shall know fully, rather, just as I also have been fully known. A little bit of background here would be helpful. Ancient mirrors were not the same as today's mirrors. Ron Allen was here a couple years ago and brought an ancient mirror. I don't know if you remember that or not, but they typically were bronze. In fact, in the Corinthian culture, the Corinthians were known for their, the quality of their mirrors. And mirrors were, were polished, very highly polished bronze. And if you were to look in a highly polished bronze mirror, you would get something of a reflection of yourself. You'd probably be able to tell if your hair was in the right place or if your tie was crooked. Now, you may not be able to tell as many details as you would in some of the mirrors that they have today. You know those mirrors that at least half of you in here use sometimes? It's got a regular size one, and then you turn it over and it magnifies everything. Why do you use those? For the life of me, ban those things. Because you know what those things do? If there's an imperfection there, it shows you exactly where it is. I mean, in, in an incredible way. So when Cindy has that thing out, I always turn it back over. I don't want to see that. <laughs> Scary enough as it is. You know, in one way we could say we're looking through a mirror dimly if we were to do it in a proportionate way. Because the bronze mirror that they had did give you a likeness of yourself. You could see something of yourself in there. But nothing like what the mirrors that we have today, and certainly nothing like these super mirrors. Now we see in a mirror dimly. They provided, the ancient Corinthian mirrors, provided a very 
usable reflected image to the user. But it wasn't the clearest possible image that they could have. Now Paul writes that, using his continuing the metaphor, we see in a mirror dimly. But then, sometime in the future, and in context, if we go from beginning to end, not from end to beginning, in context, the thing in the future is the completed revelation. Don't get wrapped up with the face-to-face thing. That's where people mess up. And they use that phrase, they think automatically that must mean second coming. Well, you were reading that back into the text too late for the context of the flow of the passage. We see in a mirror dimly, but then face-to-face, sometime in the future. And he's already established the future time will be whenever the completed revelation comes. It's not referring to seeing God face-to-face in eternity. That view is problematic. It just switches metaphors. You can't do that in midstream. The contrast is not between seeing one's face dimly in a mirror now and having direct personal fellowship with God in eternity. That's not the contrast. The contrast is between seeing one's own face now dimly and seeing face-to-face at some point in the future or seeing one's own face with more clarity. The difference is between looking at that bronze mirror and maybe looking at a more modern mirror. Both give you a reflected image, but one you're going to see more clearly. But it's your own face, not the other person's face. We can't switch metaphors in midstream. The issue here is not fellowship with God, but revelation from God. Now, there's a lot written in the Scripture about fellowship with God. John does that a lot. First John, John chapter 15. There's a lot of information about fellowship with God. It's just not here. This is about revelation from God. There's no cause to switch reference here. The first part of the verse describes a believer in the first century seeing his own face dimly in the mirror of partial revelation. The second phrase, face to face, refers to believers at a later time seeing their own faces or their own persons in the mirror of completed revelation. Face to face may very well describe fellowship with God in other contexts. But here, the difference is between seeing oneself in a mirror dimly and seeing oneself in a mirror face-to-face or clearly. Myron Houghton, chairman of the Department of Systematic Theology at Faith Baptist Seminary, wrote this about this passage. Face-to-face describes the clear and direct revelation of oneself, which believers possess today when they take a look at the mirror of the scriptures, God's completed revelation. We're looking at ourself in the scriptures. Then he goes on to say, but then I shall know fully just as I have been fully known. The then there in this verse is not future to the contemporary reader, to us. It's already happened for us. It was future for the first century reader, to his original readers. In a time future to the mid-50s, to the writing of 1 Corinthians, Paul will know fully, and by extension, so will his audience. There'll be a time when he'll know fully. Again, remaining sensitive to the context. Paul is referring to knowing himself here, in context. As he writes this, even the Apostle Paul, of all people, had an incomplete view of himself. I'm quite certain that his view of himself was greater than 
others' views of themselves at the time, because the revelation, the direct revelation he had from God was massive. But even he's saying that there's going to be a time in the future, in context, the completed canon of Scripture, when he's going to know himself even better. He'll have a better view of himself. When completed revelation would come, he would see himself like God sees him. That's why we call the Scriptures God's completed revelation to mankind. Complete and coherent message to mankind. He's going to see himself just as God sees him. Today, almost 2,000 years later, we have God's completed revelation. And therefore, we're able to understand what God's Word teaches about ourselves, our potentials, our limitations, and our needs. We can then adjust our own thoughts and our own actions to conform to God's completed revelation. One of the common mistakes that people make here is in that final phrase, I shall know fully just as I have also been fully known. Some people take, take it that that means in heaven we'll have a perfect knowledge of God. That will fully comprehend God. That there'll be a time in the future when I fully comprehend God. But that can't be the case, theologically or exegetically. Jesus says as much in Matthew chapter 11. No one knows the Father in that way, except the Son. To fully comprehend deity. I'm saying to fully comprehend deity with a one-to-one correspondence what we call the univocal view of divine self-disclosure, one-to-one correspondence, you'd have to be deity. The finite is never going to understand with perfection the infinite. And we can understand everything that God wants us to know about himself. But it'll never be perfect to fully comprehend, to perfectly comprehend deity. One would have to be deity. So even in heaven, where we'll have a much clearer view of God, We won't fully comprehend God because to fully comprehend God, we'd have to be God. And we don't turn into God's little g in heaven. We're still finite beings. That's one of the reasons why it was so important for Jesus to come in the flesh. Because in the flesh, we get to see something of God in Jesus Christ. Now, we see His humanity. We're not seeing God, even those who saw God in the first century, or saw Jesus in the first century, didn't see his deity. But they saw the function of his deity. So much so that when you saw Jesus, you saw the Father. And you can't say that about anybody else that's ever lived or will live. The unique person of the universe. So even in heaven, we won't be able to comprehend the infinite. So now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. We're seeing ourselves. I know in part, but then I shall know fully just as I've been fully known. God is going to describe everything we need to know. He's going to tell us in his word. There's nothing that you need to know to get you through this life on a spiritual way that's not in this word right here. Nothing. There's no ethical, there's no spiritual problem that is not answered in this word. And then finally in verse 13, but now abide or remain faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest is love. The phrase, but now, has a logical rather than a temporal meaning here. The words introduce the conclusion to what he began back in verse 8 when he says, love never fails. He speaks of the permanence of love in verse 8, and now as an inclusio, he speaks of it again in verse 13. 
there are some gifts, to summarize Paul's message, that are temporary in nature. But love is permanent. We should be focusing in upon love and not fighting over that which is temporary. We should be seeking the highest and best for others and not exercising selfishness in church life or any other life for that matter. This happens to be in a church life context. The Greek term meno here is translated abide in New American Standard and that's fine. It can be also translated remain. So some of your Bibles might use that phrase. Both perfectly legitimate. The virtues of faith, hope, and love abide. Or they remain. By saying that love is the greatest, he's not putting down faith or hope in any way. Believe me, we can't get through this life without faith and hope. Without faith, Hebrews tells us, it's impossible to please God. A confident expectation that God is going to get us through the troubles that we're suffering through right now is critical to the spiritual life. But I don't know if you thought about this, but there's going to be a time when faith and hope no longer function as virtues. There'll be a time. In eternity, we're not going to ever be in a position again to exercise faith or to have confident expectation of the future. It'll already be there. That's why so many of you that are suffering right now, right this minute in this room, and I know many of you are, some of you are suffering with very severe health issues that you hadn't told anybody about, or maybe only told your closest friends. Some of you are suffering with some pretty serious interpersonal issues that you're holding in, holding, holding on to them yourself, because you don't even feel like you could tell anybody, and many other things. And sometimes I know we ask ourselves, why in the world? Is God allowing me to go through this? Have you, have you ever considered that there's going to be a point in time when we'll never exercise faith again? You won't have the opportunity. You won't need to. So if we're going to have the opportunity to exercise faith, it's going to be here and now. And God in His grace gives us opportunities. It's appointed us not just to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. Not just out of meanness. God doesn't make us suffer out of meanness or like he's some sort of cosmic puppeteer trying to figure out how he can make our life miserable today. No. He allows suffering to come in our life so that we can exercise faith, so that we can show him that we love him. And it strengthens our faith. We exercise faith, we get stronger faith. I know it's hard to do. It's hard for me to do. Maybe it's easy for you, but it's hard for me to thank God through the trials for giving me an opportunity to exercise faith, to trust Him, to have confident expectation in the future because of who He is. But He does it. But there's going to be a time when that's no more. Limited number of opportunities. Have you ever thought of that? We brought up before, we have a limited number of opportunities to gather here together today in worship. Limited for all of us. Don't know when the clock's going to run out, run out on any of us, and age is irrelevant. Sometimes it runs out in our teens and 20s, and sometimes it runs out in 80s and 90s or more. We never know. So we need to make the best of each opportunity we have to worship. Every time we have an opportunity, make it the best. Make it about God and not us, fully. And in the same way, when difficulties and trials come, as the two songs that we sang this morning mentioned, when these trials come, that is our opportunity to show God that we really do believe that He exists and that He loves us and that He's not just a myth, that He's not just a psychological plaything, 
as some atheists would have us believe, that he's real and he has revealed himself to us. It's so important. So faith and hope, oh, Paul's not putting those down. He preaches them all over. These three abide at the time Paul writes this and for the entirety of the time between now and the time we go to heaven. But there's going to be a time when faith and hope are no longer. But you know what? Love's permanent. So we go all the way back to verse 8 and see he's finishing where he started this discussion. Love never fails. It never falls down. It never collapses. It never goes away. There'll be some temporary things in this life to be sure. Well, like temporary spiritual gifts. Even virtues that don't go on into eternity. But love never fails. And because it never fails, it's considered to be the greater of the virtues. It's permanent. It carries forth even into eternity. So the verse, or the argument again in verse 8 ends in verse 13. Love, the virtue that motivated God the Father to send his son to die as a substitute for us so that by grace through faith we could spend eternity in heaven with him. Love, which caused the son to fulfill his mission and not to run away, not to leave when he could have. He could have left us in just condemnation, but he didn't. Love caused him to fulfill his mission and suffer like no one else has ever suffered. For us, love which is selfless and desires the highest and the best for someone else. Love is the answer to the interpersonal problems in Corinth. And it's the answer to the interpersonal problems that we face today. Love preceded creation and will exist eternally. When in doubt, focus upon the eternal. 